Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast that tries to do something different. A discussion between Jim Power and Chris Johns about the issues of the day, political developments, economics, finance, and anything else that takes our interest. How are we different? We hope our discussions speak for themselves. You are most welcome to our podcast. Chris, last week, um, yourself and myself, we produced quite a bit of stuff on COVID-19 Uh, we did a podcast. Um, I did a blog piece that, as we discussed, um, elicited a very strong response. And indeed, that podcast and that blog continues to elicit a pretty strong response. For example, I saw your description of the EU's approach as the Daily Telegraph narrative. Um, and I, I, I'd like to ask you about that in a second, because I thought that was somebody trying to be incredibly insulting um, to your position. Um, we, we have also seen, you know, COVID and the vaccine rollout has become an item of intense divisiveness and vitriol. And as we've discussed before, um, every time we sit down to discuss this, I think we are filled with a sense of trepidation because uh, basically this whole debate is only occurring at the margins. And I was talking to a good friend of mine whose views I value very much this morning, who sort of suggested to me that we should take it easy on the COVID thing, lest we be described as anti-vaxxers or the sort of right-wing extremists. And I, th that comment sort of, it, it hit me because um, I think neither of the two of us would be anything possibly in that direction. You know, we have, we have a very open attitude Um, but I do think it's really important that these issues are debated because uh, definitely uh, the ante is being upped at the moment. Um, there's a lot of debate, uh, but the, um, the, the vitriol continues to grow. So can I just ask you, you know, for your response to that barbed insult about um, spinning out a Daily Telegraph narrative, and I suppose as somebody on this side of the water, Um, not terribly familiar with many elements of the British press, uh, but, but, but tell me what the Daily Telegraph narrative um, would sort of stand for, in your view. 
Well, I I don't know who made that remark about me spinning a Daily Telegraph narrative about uh, the whole Astra EU row. Um, if it was somebody that knows me, they know it would have hurt um, in a small way because uh, one of the you know the senses I have of myself is that I couldn't be as far removed from a Daily Telegraph reader, let alone a Daily Telegraph writer, um, that I could possibly imagine. It's a, it's a, it's a right-wing um, broadsheet, um, but in re- so it is literally that, but really it's a right-wing rag. It's a right-wing tabloid, and um, I, I very rarely read it. Sometimes I read it for fun. I'd have read it for fun today, for example, because today they've, got their, they've lowered their paywall in, in, in trying to attract some more readers. But it was... In, uh, a cheerleader for Brexit. It has an awful lot of extreme hard right-wing writers. It's owned by a couple of billionaires who seem to regard it as their personal plaything. British and indeed American and elsewhere publishing for many years has, has been the plaything of all sorts of interesting and shall we say eccentric characters. So no, I would not uh, agree <laughs> agree with that comment. But I find your Friend, conversation with your friend this morning, interesting about you know backing off from COVID because I too have had similar conversations with people, and I think one of the senses that that some of my friends have is that uh, this is a really tricky area politically for commentators. Um, it reminds me a little bit, Jim, of, of of you know thirty years ago during the great financial crisis of the early nineties. There has been more than one financial crisis in our lifetime, sadly. Um, where we got an awful lot of stick from from the Irish establishment for the stance we took at the time on things like exchange rates. And um, politically, it can be difficult to be a dissenter in, in Ireland um, when, when things are febrile as they are and when the establishment has closed ranks around a particular view. But as you say, I don't think that that should be any reason why people like us should back off. I, think, I suspect we're too old to care now. Um, and um, you know we, we we should we should be brave. I mean that's the point of this po- one of the many points of, of this podcast. Um, we, we've got to tr- take risks. But equally, the other point you make about the way in, in which they attempt to paint us. Some people have attempted to paint us as, as right wing nut jobs in all of this. That we are total lockdown skeptics along the lines of. Uh, you see in the United States and the United Kingdom, the backbenches of the House of Commons in the UK is full of um, nut jobs who who say that the, all of the lockdown is wrong and that everything should be opened up. We're, we have never been in that camp, and I suspect we never will be. I think that all, all we've done um, is actually ask more questions than, than given opinions, and um, that's an important point because I think that one of the curiosities of the Irish media response to the government in general and Neffert in particular, is, yeah, they got a tough job, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't face tough questioning. And I haven't seen nearly enough tough questions being asked of both the government and in particular the advice that it's been getting. So, yeah, I, I, I think that we, you know, this is not a subject we should shy away from in the way that others perhaps are. Um, and that's, I guess, what this podcast is all about, because we're going to talk a little bit more about the stuff that we wrote about last week and how things have evolved since then. What did you make of, of the thing that I wrote um, yesterday, actually? It was it was a, a blog post as opposed to a podcast, and it was an attempt again 
to respond to a lot of readers' comments and questions that we got. It's great that we're getting these comments and questions. Um, and one of the ways in which we're trying to make this podcast, this um, this thing that we're doing a little bit different is rather than ignoring our readers, which is what I think a lot of writers do, is that we're trying to interact with them both on the site, on the Substack site, and in this forum where we can perhaps expand a little bit more. But, but why don't you start by perhaps giving me your summary of what do you think I was trying to say with my recap of the Astra EU battle? Well, well, I guess the first thing, Chris, I I, I, I read your um, explanation or your understanding of what's going on. And we all have to accept that there are a lot of um, known and unknown unknowns here. You know, there's a lot of information we don't have. So there is an element of speculation. But if you stand back, as I try to do and think about, you know, the issues at stake here. And to me, it's a very straightforward picture you know, there is a virus that has been on the rampage around the world now for nearly 13 months. Um, economies and societies around the world have been locked down to um, varying degrees. Uh, the economic and social cost of this is absolutely huge. And as a result of all of that, I think the imperative is to roll out the vaccine program as quickly as possible. Uh, to reduce hospitalizations, to reduce illness, and most importantly, to reduce death. So if you sort of frame the debate that's going on um, in that way, um, it kind of amazes me that there can be so much uh, disagreement, vitriol, uncertainty. Um, you went through what I would regard as a very logical um explanation for possible explanations for what's been going on you know is it an issue of contract law um are, are the eu problems due to uh, the delays in regulatory approval uh, the approach of emmanuel macron in france who tried to uh, diss the astrazeneca vaccine in a very strong way basically saying it wouldn't work we've had concerns about blood clot uh, the export bans that the EU was talking about, and all of this stuff. Um, well, all of these things are possible and explanations, but they, they have all combined, I think, to create, as you say, a real sense of confusion, uh, political tension, um, and I think most worryingly of all, vaccine hesitancy and delays in delivering the vaccine. So I, I thought it was a very balanced assessment and analysis based on the information we have as to what exactly is going on. But as is always the case, when you start to analyze the performance of the European Union, and particularly when you start to analyze it in anything remotely critical, um, you immediately elicit a very strong response again. Uh, it's, it's quite amazing, I think, how het up people can get about things that are as simple as this. Um, in my view, it is really clear that the EU has to date made a total mess of dealing with the vaccine. And you look at the contrast in the United Kingdom particularly, but even in the United States now where you see uh, the uh, vaccine delivery ramping up in a very, very significant way. I mean, Europe is being left behind there is a reason why that's happening. And I think it's incumbent on all of us to try and get to the root of why it's happening. 
and hopefully drive that debate in a direction that will actually improve the delivery of the vaccine. Because at the end of the day, this is not just a sort of a remote EU issue. Ireland is part of the EU and what the EU fails or doesn't fail to do over the coming months will have a huge bearing on our lives in this country. And um, I, th- I think uh, it's really important to um, you know, critically assess and analyse what's going on. Yeah, and going back to that remark that one of our listeners made about me being a tele- Daily Telegraph-type journalist, um, in today's FT, as is there is across all media, not just our um, Substack site, uh, there's news flow, commentary and analysis of, of what's going on. And the FT today has asked a few people so this is not the Daily Telegraph. This is the Financial Times, a much more sober, centrist media organization. And um, they've got lots of interesting stuff. And they quoted somebody um, who was the former communications and strategy director for the Labour Party. So not a, not a right wing nut, nut job. And um, somebody that was very, very anti-Brexit, was very pro-EU. This guy actually wanted to have a second referendum in the hope that Britain could be made to stay, you know, all of that all that stuff that, that, that thankfully is now behind us. And he quotes this guy, his name's Tom Baldwin. If Europe wants to win this argument, they need to work out a better strategy. The EU is in danger of losing the moral high ground, allowing themselves to be presented as incompetent and undemocratic. Now that's somebody of that ilk saying things like that. And I have to tell you, Jim, that's the general mood in the UK. That's how British people generally are thinking about this. Unfortunately, it's become very politicized. It's got mixed up with all those Brexit type wars. But one of the things that I tried to do in my piece was try to suggest that um, one of the things that Europe has fallen victim of is just being Europe and doing things in the way that in the past often works for Europe, but in the teeth of a pandemic was exactly the wrong approach. If, if Europe can be defined by anything, it's, it's, it's as a set of laws. Europe is process driven. It is a set of, it's a rule book which they follow to the letter. Now, they do break it occasionally and we can talk about breaches, but generally speaking, Europe tries very hard to follow its own rule book. And that dictated a certain approach when it came to vaccines. It meant that it focused on certain things like price like product liability, that the Americans and the British just chucked out of the window and said, give us some vaccine. I also suggest that um, economics could have, an A-level a, a, an or leaving cert economics student could have uh, taught the EU a lesson right from the beginning of this, is that when you know something's going to be in short supply, you've got two ways of dealing with it. You're either going to pay up or you're going to get in line. You're going to have to queue for it. And deciding on your strategy for this um, will determine which of those two approaches or which blend of those two approaches you end up taking. Um, and, and we know what the result has been, is that Europe is, is essentially coming last in a, in a, in a three-horse race between the US and the UK. Um, I would say, and, and we, I haven't mentioned this in the article, I mean, there's just so much more that we could talk about. Um, one of the interesting things for me about vaccination rates is that we've heard a lot in the popular press about Israel but a country like Chile, for example, is succeeding all of a sudden from nowhere. This, this particular horse in the race has come from the outs, come from the back of the pack, run on the outside, and now it's neck and neck with the UK. How have they done it? It's, 
that the, the point there is not to explore how they've done it, but simply to point out it is possible to do it, even at this late stage or late-ish stage. That said, I think we, we need to remind ourselves that, you know, through April and particularly May, I suspect that a lot of this is going to recede in terms of immediate, immediacy, because I think an awful lot of vaccine is going to come on supply um, with some bumps in the road. We know about some bumps that are coming for the UK, for instance, over the next few weeks. Um, but th there is going to be ultimately enough vaccine for rich countries. There are all sorts of issues about vaccines for, for poorer countries, um, which we won't go into today. Um, so I was just simply trying to trace out where Astra went wrong, where the EU went wrong, and what the UK and the US either got lucky or, or did correctly. And again, as you say, that elicits all sorts of responses, not least that, that Daily Telegraph remark. But I must tell you, Jim, that this, the, um, the, the whole Astra EU thing has left an awful lot of people in the UK, if they were neutral or like me, very pro-EU, feeling very sad and disappointed. Um, and of course, it's just thrown fuel on the Brexit fire. Anybody that was brexit before is now brexit on steroids. So th there are political implications and consequences of all of this that I fear are, go are going to be long-lasting. And if on Thursday um, we get these export bans, I think that we could be in for a lot of trouble. That's one of the reasons why I think they're actually stepping back from it, but I don't know. Um, at the moment, I think it's less rather than more likely. But there is a big call to be made on Thursday by the EU when they all meet to decide whether or basically to stop vaccines being exported from the continent to, to the UK. Um, so that's what I was trying, trying to do, Jim. Tammy, are you suggesting that <clears throat> Macron's approach was just blatantly political, having a swipe at the old enemy again? I mean, if, if that is the case, if it is that sort of blatant and naked um, political populism, I mean, th that that's an incredible indictment of Macron um, when you're talking about uh, people's lives, but more importantly, in, in many ways, well, it's, it's, it's indirectly, it all feeds in anyway, but you're, you're talking about the huge economic and social and health cost that people across Europe are paying at the moment. And, and while that is going on, you have somebody like Macron, um, you know, engaging in these sorts of political games, if that's what you're suggesting he's at. I don't know why Macron did what he did, Jim. It's, it's a puzzle. It's a huge disappointment. Um, I think we all had high hopes for Macron when he was elected, most of which have been dashed now for all sorts of reasons, not least his complete idiocy when it's come to, to the vaccine. He, he, in British eyes, he personifies the European attitude towards, towards all of this. Do you want this vaccine or not? Is one question that might be asked. First of all, you say um, you trash its efficacy, as Macron did. Um, then you restrict it um, in terms of the over 65s, despite the data not telling you to do that, despite your own medical agency, your own scientists telling you not to do that. Then you ban it completely because of a non-issue over blood clots, which your own scientists told you was a non-issue. Um, it was part of that bureaucratic process-driven response that Europe always has in these circumstances, not just to the vaccine deals that were done originally that I talked about earlier, but also in its response to when these sorts of data points um, about things like blood clots come up. They have a process which they go through and proper leadership would be to say, in a pandemic, we don't follow these bureaucratic processes. We don't follow the precautionary principle. 
which is what they keep saying they do, which is do no harm, which is always one side of the balance sheet, one side of the calculus. Then it must always be set against the benefits of what you're doing and you must take a risk-based approach, not a precautionary approach. Pandemics require leadership and Macron has not provided it and has been an idiot. Um, and so it, it goes on and, and other politicians and countries in, in Europe have, have performed in a similar way. Um, I think he was trying to be populist and if, he, if that's the right interpretation, I think it's failed because all he's done is fueled vaccine hesitancy, if not anti-vaxxers in France, something like 40, 45% of French people say they're not gonna take the vaccine or they would be reluctant to take the vaccine. And if that's yeah. true, and I wonder if it is actually, because I think people responding to surveys and then deciding what to do are two different things, um, potentially. Uh, I, I, France is in, is, is in a lot of trouble. So yeah, Macron has been a huge disappointment, but the European, the way in which Europe has allowed these issues to be politicized rather than to be data and scientifically determined has been a huge disappointment. They've lacked leadership. And as, as that comment that I read out from the FT earlier on, I think they've lost the moral high ground on this. Okay. Uh, I, I was interested here last Saturday, Anthony Staines in DCU had a piece in the Irish Times um, talking about the uh, well, partly talking about the Irish Science Advisory Group's uh, zero COVID approach. Um, I, I found it an absolutely extraordinary article. And the one thing that struck me, was, well, a few things struck me about it. One was that it was full of sort of vitriol and bitterness, you know, having a swipe at economic commentators who were actually arguing for a full opening up of the economy. Uh, to be honest, I don't know one economic commentator who has been calling for a full opening up of the economy in this country. Um, and, and secondly, it struck me that uh, there was a lot of history being rewritten here. Um, you know, there was he was sort of arguing that all they ever really wanted was a proper test trace and an isolate system put in place, and also suggesting that they never called for a sealing of the border with Northern Ireland and sort of admitting now uh, that that was a ridiculous notion in the first place. But I, I, I get the sense that the Irish Science Advisory Group um, has really taken a hammering over the last three or four weeks for a variety of reasons and that they're now feeling battered and bruised and, you know, they're trying to get back on side, get into the popular narrative again. Um, I'm always fascinated by... Um, another DCU academic, Edgar Morganrath, who refers to him as the zeroids. Um, which, which is what a mathematical term, of, actually. Yes, indeed. Yeah, the, what, the, what, yeah. what did you think of this article? I too thought it was an extraordinary piece. And um, I also agree that in, in different ways it was trying to rewrite history. One of the things that um, I and others um, have noticed about the Irish zero COVID uh, movement, shall we say, um, is that uh, unlike in other countries, because in the UK there's, there, there's a, a number of scientists who proposed similar uh, sorts of strategies, is, is the way in which in Ireland, more than any other country that I know of, the, the, this uh, movement, um, I'm tempted to call it a cult, but that would be pejorative, this movement um, has dominated the media airwaves in the way that it has. 
and um, has gotten the traction that it has. They've not had nearly enough, they've not, not had nearly as much attention paid to um, in, in many other countries. The debate has been more nuanced, more subtle, and frankly, more sophisticated. And um, their communication strategy has left a lot to be desired. Uh, I agree that um, whether by accident or, or design, they did become associated with a seal the border type message. Um, that may have, may have been a failure of their messaging, but certainly that was the message I took from certainly their, their, their early stuff. So to say that they never said seal the border, I think is um, verging on a, a rewrite of history. Um, and, and that's interesting, shall we say. Um, they, they, they can be criticized in all sorts of different ways, but um, it might well be a rewriting of history to say that all we ever meant was let's do test, trace, and isolate properly. And if that's, if that's now what they're saying, that's actually quite reasonable. But I don't think it was what they were saying originally, um, because other countries' experience tells you that this is the way forward. Um, it's all very well being in New Zealand, where you can seal the border very, very easily, where you don't have thousands of ferry movements, lorry movements all the time going through your various ports, going through Dublin port. They don't have that equivalent. So they don't have that connectivity to the outside world. And of course, they don't have a land border with their equivalent of, of Northern Ireland. Then their nearest big neighbor is Australia, and they've just postponed opening up the border to Australia. So um, in a way, New the New Zealand strategy is a forever strategy. It works, provided you're willing to do it, do it forever. Um, but the test, trace, and isolate thing is really interesting because there was another article, I think in Saturday's FT, we we're talking about that, uh, not FT, Irish Times, um, by Fintan O'Toole. Now, he's a writer that he and I have got a lot of previous with, actually, and I suspect both of us um, disagree pretty much with everything that uh, each of us writes. Um, but for once, he wrote, I thought, something very sensible, and it was all about test, trace, and isolate and the way in which Ireland hasn't done it. Um, it's done a bit of testing, it's done a bit of tracing, um, backward tracing, not so much in terms of contact tracing, and properly doing isolation, nah, it hasn't done that at all. And again, I would blame partly the, the zeroids for this in that the focus on the border is the one where we are isolating people coming into the country, but we don't have a sensible isolation strategy for um, uh, community transmission for, for once people get it actually in, in Ireland. Um, the, the country that has done this the best, the country that uh, of, of all of the ones that I've studied quite closely that have done test, trace, and isolate is actually South Korea. Um, but it's not just South Korea. Iceland, um, a completely different um, geographic population, demographic entity, has also done test, trace, and isolate. And both countries are very open now. But the reason why they have been able to open, despite outbreaks, um, Iceland had a particularly bad outbreak um, earlier, but now is opened up again. Um, they are p literally partying and karaokeing, and um, long may it continue. I hope that it works for them. But it's, it's, it's countries that have done test, trace, and isolate well are the ones that have been able to contain this and allow life to, um, to continue, not as normal, but certainly much more normal than we've had both in Ireland and the UK and, and in other countries. And that's where our resources should have gone and, and indeed still should. Yeah, I was, uh, I was fascinated by that Fintan O'Toole article because I think like yourself, um, I would rarely agree uh, with very much the Fintan rights. And I think the feeling is very, very mutual. Uh, but he was also talking about the community spread 
and it he was basically making the point that um saying that something it's community transmission means they haven't a goddamn clue um where it's coming from um and, and that is the case because uh there we we have abjectly failed and you know Fenton makes that very clear and it's very hard to disagree we have abjectly failed over the last 12 months with proper test trace and isolate and the economic social and health cost we continue to pay is really really huge um i'm not sure if if it's now well number one is it too late to do anything about it and number two even if we decide we wanted to do we have the capability of putting a proper system in place i suspect we don't and it's interesting that uh, the government is currently looking at the review of Ireland's lockdown because April 5th is the the next date when decisions will be made as to what the future is going to look like. Um, and there's a number of things that strike me as we approach April 5th. One is that the lockdown has not worked in this country. Level 5 has abjectly failed in my view. And it's also very, I think, telling the Oxford Stringency Index, uh, which is a, a look globally at the various restrictions that every country in the world has put in place to deal with COVID. Ireland is top of that league. We have had, on average, the most stringent COVID restrictions over the last 12 months. And yet um, it, it's failing you know, we're, we're, we're absolutely failing. We're, we're just in this ongoing rolling lockdown that is exerting a huge price. And uh, I, 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 and I said this last week and I say it again, you know, I think the Irish government and Neffert has definitely lost the dressing room. And I would sort of ask you the question, uh, could anybody have done it better? Could things have been done better? Or is it very easy for people like me to stand on the sideline and criticise. Yeah, that's something that a lot of our commenters have come back to us. They very kindly have said that they see, they agree with the broad thrust of what we're saying. But are we hurlers on the ditch? Are we having a go at the government just because they're there? Did the government just get dealt a very bad hand and nobody could have done well with this? It was always going to be a big ask. It was always going to be very tough and there were no good outcomes. Um, the simple answer I give, I refer back to what South Korea and Iceland have done and the fact that right from the very beginning, I wrote an article, not that anybody's going to listen to me, more importantly, lots of scientists jumped up and down and said that the way forward for this, this side of a, an effective vaccine is test, trace and isolate. If you get the three things right, you will be able to have some semblance of normality and you won't have to do this lockdown thing. The World Health Organization led the charge on that. And you had the head of the World Health Organization right at the very start of this, almost shouting into a microphone the words test, test, test. That was shorthand for test, trace and isolate. And uh, we can keep on saying it and we can keep on getting ignored. And you ask the question, is it too late? No, it's not. At least it's not too it's not too late in the sense that I believe, and a lot of scientists more importantly do as well, that um, even when the whole world is vaccinated, which is probably on current rates, it could change, on current rates, we're two years away at best from having the majority of people on this planet um, vaccinated, probably, possibly 
longer. So what are you going to do about borders in the meantime? And the reason why I ask that question is that everybody, Matt Hancock, the health secretary in the UK, every health minister around the world, every advisor is saying you've got to get cases down before you open up and you can only open up when you're vaccinated and you can only only open up um, in a full way when there isn't a threat of variants and that's only going to come when the whole when covid has been contained globally because if it's if it if covid is somewhere then it's potentially here if you have anything like an open border so for years we're going to have to have a test trace and isolate system if we're to have any foreign travel for example um, but it's got to be this balanced test and trace and isolate for both domestically and inward arriving cases. And if you don't do it, you're going to be back in that rolling lockdown, vaccine or no vaccine, because you will be importing cases, for example. That's where, you know, focus on the border is appropriate. So no, it's not too late. And the thing is, Jim, the returns on your investment, speaking as a finance guy, to doing test, trace and isolate properly are immense because it means you can open up your economy if you get it right. And so the mystery is why the advisors, why Neffet, for example, I don't understand why the scientific community hasn't been jumping up and down even more than it has for saying, why haven't you done this? And no, it's not too late. We still, I think we, it's, it's more than it's not too late. We still have to do it because we're years away from the world declaring itself to be relatively COVID free. And I stress relative. So it still has to be done. And I think that quietly the UK is finally starting to do something on this because I don't know whether you've seen the figures over the last few days. Um, they're now testing over a million people a day here. Mass testing has arrived in the UK. Now it has to be supplemented with proper contact tracing and proper isolation. But the case, but the critical thing to realize is that in the UK, um, less than one, less than half a half, less than half of one percent of tests are coming back positive. Now that means that low percentage number means that you can do the contact tracing and the isolation properly. So having taken a year to get it right, they're starting to get it right here, and it's something that in Ireland you, you should you should be actively pursuing as well and throwing resources at. But tell me, Chris, one thing I find I have found intriguing in relation to the test, trace, isolate, because, you know, 12 months ago, this, as you say, the scientists were saying that this was the way forward. But yet I heard one of the key guys in Neffet on the radio um, argue that they didn't go back beyond 20, 48 hours because it was of academic interest only. I found that absolutely extraordinary because, you know, given that the, the virus um, is transmissible for, you know, at least six days and possibly 14 days, um, you know, the notion that you wouldn't go back beyond 48 hours to trace contacts seemed absolutely bizarre. I mean, how do scientists and medical experts um, get it, well, in my view, so bloody wrong? It's something as fundamental as that. Well, I guess you you have to ask them, but I think on this one they are wrong. And from that, I just take my cue again from countries like South Korea and Iceland, where you listen to the health authorities there who talk about hunting down this virus in terms of contact tracing. They send out teams of people into the community knocking on doors. Um, they have enforcement mechanisms. They have carrot and stick approaches to isolation. All of these things are done in those countries and they work. 
and um, they should be replicated, replicated for Irish and British conditions, absolutely. I mean, they, they, these are different cultures after all, but it can and should be done. Because if you don't do it, you're, 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 you run the risk forever of having somebody saying, but what about variants? And if you're going to have, but what about variants as your mantra for as long as COVID exists in the world, your country is going to have to be shut or at least heavily restricted in terms of the ability of people to enter the country. And so the way forward, the only way you're going to be able to have anything like a foreign holiday, not just this year, but also next year and probably the year after, is if proper test, trace and isolate is in place. Without it, unless some miracle occurs, like the virus mutating out or herd immunity or all these other things that we've hoped for that have failed to arrive, um, we are in trouble. Uh, Chris, could, could I just wrap up by um, asking you a couple of things? One, um, if you were the Irish government, what would you do on April 5th? And secondly, and I saw you on social media earlier today talking about Portugal. Uh, tell us what's going on in Portugal at the moment and what we can learn about that here in Ireland. Well, the first point is that Portugal has a plan. And one of the things that people keep asking me is, is or, or commenting really, is, is what is Ireland's plan? Why haven't we got one? I don't know the answer to that. Um, but if you look at Portugal's numbers, their death rate at the moment, sad though it is, over the, the last short while is exactly the same as Ireland's. So their incidence, of, their, is, their death rate is the same. They've got their case from being the worst country in the world per capita for COVID case numbers. They've got their numbers down a lot. They're now less than Ireland's, um, but not, you know, um, they have in, in their terms, or in anybody's terms, actually, their lockdown, um, not quite as stringent as Ireland's, their lockdown has worked. So I would say to the Irish authorities in, in this particular case, why has their lockdown worked and not ours? What lessons can be learned? And that's a general thing I would say about the, 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 the approach taken in Ireland is that very, I haven't seen very much of what can we learn from other countries' experiences with this so that we can adapt and change our very blunt lockdown strategy. So that speaks to the experience of the Portuguese, and I keep banging on about the Icelandics and also the South Koreans. I don't see much evidence of learning from those experiences. Um, and it speaks to the science of, of virus transmission, of you know, it's being outdoors. Very few people have gotten COVID outdoors, Jim. So why they persist with, with these blunt lockdowns that prevent people from doing socially distant outdoor activities is, is beyond me. Um, the, going back to Portugal, their vaccination rate is the same as Ireland's. Um, it, in fact, it's probably slightly worse. Ireland's been a va better vaccinator. So they're learning from their relative success and also looking, they have a detailed plan, um, not wholly dissimilar to the British one. Um, despite not having the British success with vaccines, they're going to open up their economy on a similar kind of timetable and on current plans, which of course can change. It's going to be fully open on a British timescale. And so that's not, not you know, again, what, what, why, if the Portuguese, another EU member of the Eurozone can do this, why can't Ireland? It's a simple enough question to which there may be lots of answers, but I do think it's important to at least ask the questions. I totally agree. So th thank you very much, Chris. Um, talk again. Thanks, Jim. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power 
We aim to provide an independent take on economics, politics, and anything else that takes our fancy. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope to have you on board again very soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.